0: Tonight's message will be sermon number 17 in the series on infant salvation, and will be the second dealing with the Calvinistic theory of infant salvation, and the title of the message tonight is, How Are Infants Saved? How Are Infants Saved? Now in the previous message, we began to examine the Calvinistic theory of salvation and how it relates to infants our goal was to answer the question as to whether or not infants could be viewed as savable from the Calvinistic viewpoint. Due to the length of time we took in clarifying the Calvinistic viewpoint of salvation relating to the order of God's decrees, we were not enabled to fully answer this question, and that being our infant savable. Thus, tonight's task will be to answer two interrelated questions. Are infants savable, and if so, how are they actually saved? Now, after spending numerous meetings together examining this subject, we have rejected the rationalistic, sentimental, and sacramental systems of religious faith on the grounds that they either deny or ignore the biblical revelation of God. And so we are left with two basic systems of religious faith which attempt to stay within the scriptures and apply the gospel to the question of salvation. These two religious systems are known as evangelical Arminianism and evangelical Calvinism. We've narrowed all of it down to these two systems, and we'll see what they have to say to the issue before us. Now, these two systems, that of the evangelical Arminian system and the evangelical Calvinist, we define them as evangelical to make them distinct from the sacramental system. The sacramental system holds that God has entrusted salvation in the hands of a man or in a church, or in an ordinance. An evangelical is one who says, no, it is one who has a direct relationship with God. And it is not his relationship to an ordinance, or to a priest, or to a church. So since we define evangelical Arminianism and evangelical Calvinism as the two systems of religious faith which attempt to stay within the framework of the Bible, the rest stepping out of the framework of the Scriptures, then we want to examine those tonight and see wherein they agree and how they disagree, and then show from the Calvinistic viewpoint how it applies the gospel to the salvation of an infant. Now, the two systems are agreed, and listen carefully to these summarizations. The two systems are agreed that all men are born with a sinful nature so that they are both guilty under the wrath of God and depraved. That is, they are possessing a sinful nature. Both systems consent and agree there. Secondly, both of these religious systems agree that God has, the Father has elected some to be saved. They do not believe that all are going to be saved. They do not believe that all are going to be lost. They believe that God the Father has chosen some to be saved. Secondly, they agree, or thirdly, they are agreed together that God the Son has redeemed some people from their sins. Some people are actually going to have their sins paid for. Then fourthly, they are agreed together that God the Spirit Has regenerated and changed the nature of some people so that they love God. Now that is the agreement which these two systems of religious approach take. It is at this point that they express their disagreement upon one central issue. That issue being whether the saving acts of God, election, redemption, and regeneration, are withheld and conditioned upon man's first performing his duty, or whether the saving acts of God are unconditionally applied by God, first acting upon the man so that he can free him from his sin and cause the man to respond to do his duty. So the issue comes down to that one central dividing thing. Since God is agreed upon by both systems to do the saving act, the disagreement between the Calvinist and the Arminian is whether or not that man must first perform some specified duty and then God acts, or whether God unconditionally acts so as to cause man to perform the duty which God asks out of him. That is the distinction between the difference between an Arminian and a Calvinist. For they are both agreed that man is born in trespasses and sin. They both agree the Bible teaches election. They both agree that the Bible teaches redemption. And they both agree that the Bible teaches regeneration or sanctification of human nature. But they are disagreed on whether or not That man first acts and does his duty, and then God is freed to act, or whether God acts and frees man so he can act. Now, let's look then tonight at God's salvation plan, whether it is conditional or unconditional, and then apply it to the matter of infant salvation. Since the Arminian and the Calvinist are agreed upon this great principle, that God's redemptive plan involves an election of God the Father, a redemption by God the Son, and a sanctifying act of regeneration by God the Spirit, since they are so much in agreement there, you would think that they could get along. But the problem then comes down to this. Is God's saving plan conditional or unconditional? Let's examine first the question of election. Is the script or does the scripture present election as an unconditional act of God, or is it conditioned upon God foreseeing man as he acts? Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter nine and verse thirteen. And we'll try to relate this question to the, to the issue before us of infants. Here are two infants, twins, within the womb of one mother. Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. Now bear in mind that the Arminian principle of logic will say that the reason one was chosen and the other one was not is that God saw good actions on the part of one which he did not see performed on the part of the other. Therefore, what God foresaw the one doing, he elected him because he saw the condition being performed or taken care of. Now, Romans chapter 9 and beginning in verse 10. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, For the children, not being yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, that is, is it based upon actions, or upon him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, someone, having read this, immediately says, well, the answer to this, it doesn't have a thing to do with salvation, it just has to do with the forming of external privileges as a nation, and so forth. And then that's supposed to take away any objection, any uh, uh, disagreement over this passage of Scripture. Well, the Apostle Paul did not think that way because he's anticipating somebody to object to what he's preaching. And he says in verse 14, what shall we say then, is there unrighteousness with God? Whatever he's saying up there, he's anticipating somebody to say, hold it, preacher, that's not right. Now, if the explanation is that the election is just unto some national privileges going along with the nation of Israel, then this objection would never have surfaced. But Paul's anticipating an objection to surface. Is there unrighteous with God? The reply is, God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, so that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now is the basis of the election that which God foresaw in the infant's acting and as they grow up, he foresees certain actions, and he says, all right, in the basis of that, I see Jacob acting, obeying. I see Jacob repenting, believing, and obeying me. Therefore, I will elect him, because he performed the conditions. Or was the election not considered on what he saw in either of these, but purely upon his prerogative to call? Now, this is the Arminian, says one, the Calvinist, the other. Now, notice in our text that the Holy Spirit recorded it in this fashion, that the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that is, they have not acted personally. So that means that the election of God was not conditioned upon them performing actions. They had not yet personally acted. But it was said, I love Jacob, and I hate Esau. Now, someone says, at this point, then doesn't that then show that the supralapsarian view of the Calvinist is right? Does that not then show that God decreed or predestinated and elected, not viewing whether that man was fallen, but strictly that he created some? to damn, and some to save. And if we have an understanding of Calvinism, we would say, well, let's hold it for a moment here. Let's hold just a second. Even though neither of these persons had personally acted in sin or righteousness, still we hold as Calvinists that a person is a sinner before they ever act. They are born with a sinner sinful nature in Adam, their representative. Therefore, God could say, I can say to Moses, I will have mercy. Now, mercy falls upon an object that is sinful, not holy. So that God can say of these two infants, before they ever personally sin, before they ever personally do a good work, I choose one. To love him and I pass by the other. Therefore I can for love on the basis of showing mercy to Jacob, and I can justly hate Esau because of his sin. Now these both come out of the same womb. So it is not our understanding here that this text would side with the Armenian system of logic. Because it is clearly stating that God did not take into consideration anything he foresaw in either Jacob or Esau, what they did personally, but it was of his own act that he chose the one and left the other. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and God says there is no unrighteousness with that. Now, last week we attempted to try to show that. God is not unrighteous if he lets some go on their sinful way, and he decrees to save others if all deserve to perish. Now, God then is not unrighteous, and Paul answered it in that particular fashion. But I want us to notice something here. If the Armenian position be true, that election is based upon God foreseeing man's repentance, his faith, and his evangelical obedience, then what does God see in an infant which dies before he repents, believes, and obeys? Now, reflect on that for a moment. Selah. If election is conditioned upon foreseen actions, God cannot foresee repentance, faith, and obedience in the infant, for the infant cannot perform these. Hence, the Arminian system of logic has no basis for an infant being an object of election. Go back over it again. Do I need to? Let me rehash it one more time. If election, according to the Arminian proposition, is based upon God foreseeing the person performing conditions, the infant cannot perform the conditions. Therefore, God cannot foresee that, and the infant is not an object of election. It cannot be. So that, since election is included in God's salvation plan, infants can only be capable of election if election is unconditional, as the Calvinists teach. For example, if we look down upon the infant and we see that it cannot repent, it cannot believe, it cannot issue in evangelical obedience, as Arminians say is necessary, then infants cannot be the object of the saving decree of election, because they are mentally, morally, and physically incapable of complying with these conditions. But if election is unconditional, not based on foreseen actions of men, as Calvinists teach, then infants are capable of being elected. Now, that's the way that the two systems of logic run. That's why that we found that the Armenians, when they were pressed out in their logic, then they had to allow for the infants to grow up in an afterlife, for them to determine their destiny, since they couldn't determine it in this life by repenting and believing. The strict Armenians then have to give the infant a chance after death. Now let's look at some examples of persons in the Bible. Elected as infants. If there are some examples of people in the Bible being elected or chosen by God as infants, then this would further verify the Calvinistic position. Go back to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. Jeremiah, chapter 1, and verse 5. Are there statements of individuals in the Bible to whom God declared he would act upon before they could consent to act? And here we have it recorded by Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 1 and verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I, what? I knew thee, And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nation. Now, here is an example of a person being chosen by God prior to their giving of their own personal consent to do so. God says, I have a purpose, and before I ever created you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Hold your finger there just for a moment. A thought comes to my mind to help clarify this. Now, don't lose that spot, but go to the uh, book of Romans, chapter 8. The Arminian makes much of the use of the word foreknow in the scriptures. And he says that the basis of God saving a person rests upon what God foreknows that person will do. Now, let us see if that's exactly the way the f- word foreknow is used in the Scriptures. Romans chapter, what did I say, 8, verse uh, 29. Verse 28 is very familiar. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow. And our Armenian friend says, all right, now see there, uh, uh, Mr. Gables, it's whom God did foreknow. All right, we'll come back there and Just He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, and moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called, and whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he glorified. Now, beloved, I submit to you it's altogether different for me to foresee what a person shall do and act then it is for me to foreknow that person himself. Notice Romans 8, 29 does not say, for what God did foresee. It says, whom he foreknew. It is not what God foresaw in Jacob in his actions. It was that God foreknew Jacob as a creature created by himself. I knew thee, and before I even created you, I knew you. And the word foreknow also can be exercised with the term loved. Whom I foreloved, them I call. Now, now compare that with Jeremiah. Before I formed you, before I created you in the belly, I foreknew you. I knew you as a person, as a creature, and as a fallen creature. But I ordained you to be a prophet. I set you apart from the womb to be a prophet, or my servant, to the nations. Now, another example is found in Isaiah, chapter 49. Isaiah, the 49th chapter. We are trying to find examples of individuals who were chosen as infants. Isaiah, chapter 49, and verse 1. Isaiah states, Listen, O isles, come to me, and hearken, you people, from far. The Lord hath called me from what? From the womb. Who are the called according to his what? To his purpose. That calling was given to Isaiah from the womb as an infant. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my what? My name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now notice God's already saying what he's going to do with this infant before he creates him. It is not God looking for conditions. It's God saying, I'm going to act, and here's what this creature's going to do. Then in verse 4, Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work is with my God. The prophet Isaiah said, I just haven't gotten much accomplished for God. I'm not much of a servant. Verse 5, And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his what? His servant. It was not that he foresaw that Isaiah would be his servant, he created him in the womb to be his servant. To bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. I have to read that text ever so often when I get a little discouraged with the fruit of my preaching. When I think, oh my, here's all these other men and how useful they are in the vineyard of the Lord, and here's how little I'm being used. I go back to Isaiah's day, and he said, I'm not being used very much, but now wait a minute. I better remind myself, it's God which put his purpose on me. God determines how much I'm going to be used, and though all Israel not be called, yet I'll be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. What an encouragement it is for the preacher or the workman of the Lord in the vineyard of the Lord, to know that God chose him as an infant, to use him, to set him forth in the work of God. Then let's go to the New Testament example of the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 1, Galatians the first chapter, and verses 15 and 16. The apostle is saying how much he had done in his past life for the Jews and their religion. Verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, Galatians 1.15, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Here we see Paul, the object of election from the womb. God set him apart from the womb. So here we see then some examples of individuals who were elected by God, not because of foreseen actions, but because God foreknew them and foreknew what his purpose was for them. And therefore, he brought to pass that purpose to its completion. Even when the apostle Paul would seem to be the most unlikely person to be saved, God had his eye on him all the time. And when that time came for God to reveal his son in him, I don't care how hardened he was against the Lord Jesus Christ, God knocked the pride out of that man on the road to Damascus. And when he did... Paul cried out, Who art thou, Lord, and what wilt thou have me to do? And then after two years of getting his theology straight in the Arabian desert, not going to flesh and blood, why then he said, I see it now all the time. God set me apart from my mother's womb, and in his due time he revealed his son in me, that I might go and be his servant to preach the unsearchable riches of the gospel unto the Gentiles. Now again, we leave this thought with this statement. Arminian logic says that election is conditioned upon foreseen faith, repentance, and obedience in men. Since infants cannot repent, believe, and obey, Arminian logic then is as a loss to explain how any infant could be an object of election. But since election is unconditional, it is not God seeing that somebody must first do something, then an infant can then be an object of election. And some, we give, have certainly been such. let then progress now to the second stage, of God's redemptive salvation plan, and that involves redemption itself. Is redemption conditioned, that is, do the people who benefit from the atonement of Christ, do they do so because they apply those benefits to themselves by repenting, believing, and obeying, or is the redemptive work of Christ applied unconditionally unto those who are made beneficiaries of the atonement? Now, I ask you to as put it in this life this evening. Do you believe that you have been made a partaker of the saving blood of Christ? you believe that tonight? Do you believe that you've somehow entered into the benefits of that atonement? Now was that something then that you availed yourself by performing certain conditions or was this atonement applied unconditionally to you? The Armenian says conditions first had to be met, repentance faith, obedience, and then the benefits of the blood are applied and you are pardoned. And the Calvinist says no. Christ died unconditionally. He applies that blood to his people, and they repent, believe, and are obedient as a fruit of the blood, not as a cause for the blood to act. Now then, let's look in Romans chapter 5 and verses 8 through 10, and let us see if Christ had to get the consent, now while you're turning, don't lose me. Did Christ have to get the consent of men before he died? Did God have to get the consent of men before he elected? We've seen election is unconditional. Let us see if the Lord Jesus Christ had to get his death approved by men before he came and died. That is, did men have to perform some condition before Christ could leave heaven's glory and come and die? Or did he just come and do it? In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5, and what did we say? Verse 8 through 10. But God commended his love toward us in that when he saw that we would consent... Christ died for us. Hmm? What are you looking at me that strange way for? Did I read it wrong? Look at it again. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. What is a sinner? A sinner is someone who is set in opposition against God, who will not consent to God being God. And yet Christ came right on and died while we by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him, for if, when we were consenting, if, when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I submit to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, came forth, was made of a a woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And that fullness of time was not that which God looked out and gained man's consent for him to do so. Jesus came at the appointed hour of redemption. And he died without any man's consent. And in his death, he purchased pardon for the Father. Without man's consent. He died while man was an enemy. Not consenting. So it is not that Jesus, or rather the atonement of Christ is applied to those who first conditionally repent and believe. Now let's take the Arminian logic and grant that that be the case, though, and let's go to that famous passage in all the scripture dealing with the Atonement, John 3.16, and let's see then just what that says. And if it has anything to say for the hope of a baby under Armenian logic, do we have to even go there? Can we not rehearse that famous passage, the central theme of the gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son? There's the atonement, all right? There's the love of God. Now, who are made beneficiaries of that atonement? Who profits or benefits anything from the atonement? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, what, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now let's apply the Arminian logic there. Let's take that term world according to the Arminian who says that means each and every member of Adam's race. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believe it. And one Arminian writer that I read says, now there, that includes the infants in that redemptive work. And what he did not realize, he just excluded every infant from that redemptive work. How do you see that, Pastor? Let's put the word infants in place of the word world. Are you ready now? For God so loved infants that he gave his only begotten Son, that whatsoever infant believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now show me an infant that can repent and believe. If an infant cannot repent and believe, according to the Arminian system, then an infant cannot be an object of redemption, according to the Armenian logic. If God so loved the world, and that world is all-inclusive, and it includes infants, that doesn't benefit anybody until that atonement is actually applied and becomes theirs. And how is it applied? Is it applied, conditioned, upon the individual first repenting, believing, and obeying, as the Arminian says? If so, then that eliminates the infant. So there can be no infant salvation, no infant can be an object of the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, if in order to be a partaker of that blood, he must first perform some condition. It has just eliminated all the hope for infants under the Arminian logic. Now, at this time, usually the Arminian starts becoming very illogical and ends up backing into the door of Calvinism at this point in his discussion. But we say, infants can only be capable of redemption if redemption is applied unconditionally, as the Calvinists teach so that when the blood of Christ is applied to the life of a person for whom it was designed, it will secure pardon with God, and it will secure a change-transformed nature wherein the infant, in his subconscious, becomes conscious of his sorrow toward God and of his need of a Savior." That is, as the individual grows into a consciousness, then they become aware that they are a sinner and that they need a Savior and that Christ is that Savior. So that repentance and faith, while they are conditions unto salvation, they are not conditions of election. They are not conditions of redemption. Men must repent and believe, But repentance and faith are produced in the person's consciousness through the inworking of the Holy Spirit down deep in the subconscious nature of man. Now let's move to the third class, or the third, third stage in God's redemptive program. That deals with regeneration. Is regeneration conditioned upon man's acting, Or is it unconditional upon God's acting? Which is it? Let's go back to Romans chapter 5 again, and verses 5 and 6. God has elected unconditionally. He sent his Son into the world unconditionally. He chose Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Paul without their prior consent. He sent Jesus to the world to die without sinners' consent. Now then, let us see how regeneration takes place in Romans 5. Verse 5, And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given us. Do you love God tonight? My friend, you wouldn't love him if the Holy Spirit hadn't done something to your nature. You wouldn't have any love there for God. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given. It is a gift unto us. But is it conditioned? Is that gift granted upon the condition of faith, repentance, and obedience, and then the love of God is given? Paul clarifies what he's talking about in verse 6. Watch. For when we were yet without what? Strength. We had no ability. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly, and in his death he purchased the grace of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to impart ability to a sinner who has lost his ability to love God. The ability to love God must be restored through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for man lost that in the fall. And they come into this world lacking that. They don't have it by nature. Look over in Romans chapter eight and uh, verse uh, verse six. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against who? Who is it? Against God. Now, when did you get your carnal mind? Armenians and Calvinists both consent. We got it in our birth. Now, that's a mind that's at war with God. Now, look at it. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot do what? They cannot please God. Now, beloved, how can a man who's at war with God give his consent to love God? He's lost his strength. He needs God to unconditionally come and do for him what he cannot do for himself. So that God will say in one passage, make yourself a new heart. Now, anybody that can do that, they'll be right with God. When the person is When that is spoken to a self-righteous person, that's spoken to bring them down to see their inability, so that they can see only God can give a new heart. Only God can restore to fallen Adam what he lost in the fall. So regeneration is unconditional. Ephesians 2, verse 1, a very familiar passage of Scripture, which nearly all of us hear in our reading and our study of the Word of God regularly. You have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what were we like prior to our quickening? That's regeneration. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, does that sound like a person who's ready to consent to love God? Hmm? Everything's against him, and he has no desire to consent. But what's the next two words? But God. God quickens at that time unconditionally who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And then in that context it explains what salvation by grace means. By grace you're saved. God unconditionally acts. He does not wait for man to act. It's when man cannot act that God acts. That's what it means to be saved by grace. Every religious system claims to believe in salvation by grace. But salvation by grace is not God waiting for man to act to free him to act. It is when man cannot act without strength that God acts. He performs a new creation in Christ Jesus. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of human action, lest any man should boast. Beloved, God's going to shut the mouth of every sinner, even to the point where that sinner cannot say, I consented to allow you to save me. They won't even be able to boast in that. God will say, if I had not quickened and shed my love abroad in your heart by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you'd still be at enmity with me. That's where you'd be tonight. That's where I'd be if God had not unconditionally acted toward us in Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good acts or unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, infants can only be capable of regeneration if regeneration is unconditional, as Calvinists teach. For an infant cannot meet the conditions of repentance and faith. And therefore, if repentance and faith must first be performed prior to regeneration, that eliminates any infant from being regenerated. And we've already seen that in the Armenian positions in which they say that God can pardon the infant, but he cannot change the infant's nature until the infant can consciously give its consent. And since the infant can't consent in this life, it must be allowed to grow up into the next life. Now, are there some examples in the Bible where infants' natures were sanctified or changed prior to their conscious consent? And we feel there are some. Let us go back to Psalm chapter 16 and start with David. Psalm chapter 16 and verse 8. Here we have David's hope. When was David given his hope? In knowing the true God. Psalm chapter 16 and verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in what? In hope. That is, I'm going to die, going to go to the grave, but it's going to rest with a hope. When did David get his hope? At what time in David's human experience did he first become conscious of a hope in God? Well, let's go over and answer that question to Psalm chapter 22 and verses 9 and 10. Now, we're not dealing with election here. We're not dealing with redemption. We're dealing with the final part of God's salvation plan. Are there examples of a person being... Sanctified in their nature as an infant in the Bible. Look in Psalm chapter 22 and verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the what? Womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. David didn't have a bottle. He had the breast of his mother to draw nourishment from, physically. But David learned as an infant that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God, and he was conscious of a hope in God, even as an infant upon his mother's breast. Beloved, here is an example of the sanctifying ministry of the Spirit of God imparting a consciousness even to an infant. God-consciousness, not just consciousness that there's light. Our doctors tell us that the infant, when he's first born, can know that, that even now that the infant is conscious of various things inside the mother's womb. But here is an infant who became God-conscious, a hope very early. Go now to the New Testament, to the example of John the Baptist in Luke chapter, 5, uh, Luke chapter 1. Here is an example of the sanctifying ministry of the Spirit of God working upon the fallen nature of a human being so as to secure their consent, to make them conscious of their need of God and of a Savior. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15 speaking to Zacharias and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Now, you run down your references in the Bible as to what it means to be filled with the Holy Ghost, and wherever that term is used, it is always associated with a sanctifying influence upon one's nature. You cannot have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life and it not somehow alter your nature and way of living. John the Baptist was spoken of to be filled with the ministry of the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Let's watch this. Go over to verse 39. Well, look in verse 26. In the sixth month, that is, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. John 6 months old that's about 24 weeks if I've got it right maybe a little bit more maybe 27 yeah probably about 27 weeks old if it's a normal gestation period in the 6th month the angel gabriel was sent from god into a city of galilee named nazareth to a virgin who would that be all right that's the virgin mary now what's you going to tell mary she's going to bear a child and this child's going to be the savior Now, I want you to look in verse 39. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into the city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. I believe they're cousins. Am I right? It came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the greetings of Mary, she's coming with the good news, she is pregnant with the Son of God, the Savior of men, The babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, someone says, oh, but you're reading too much here. It says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, not the babe. The babe just happened to move his location at this time. That's all that means there. The babe, John the Baptist, didn't have any influence of the Holy Spirit in his life. It was just Elizabeth. Well, let's let Elizabeth give the testimony of what this means, not us. Verse 42, she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Oh, you're a blessed woman, Mary, and that which is in your womb is blessed of God also. And whence is this to me that the mother of my what? My Lord's coming, should come to me. My God is coming to me, and you're the mother. That's where the Catholics get the term, the mother of God, Okay. For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe in the womb leaped for what? Leaped for joy. John the Baptist got happy. Why? He heard the news of a Savior. Beloved, if you'd been made conscious that you were conceived in sin as David was, you'd be conscious of a need of a Savior. And David was given that consciousness even as he sucked the milk from his mother's breast. Just as John the Baptist was given a consciousness that at six months of age in the womb, not outside, six months from conception, there was a sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit which made him consciously aware of his need of a Savior. Now then, if you'd asked John later on when he got saved, I wonder what you would have replied. I wonder what he would have replied. Hmm? If someone had said, now, well, John, you can't be saved until you're 12 years old, until you reach the age of responsibility, accountability, then you're ready for a candidate to give your decision." And if you can't name the day and the hour and what color of clothes you had on, who the preacher was, and what the organist was playing, John, you just didn't get it. What would John have said? He said, I didn't have any clothes on the day I got saved and I'm not being cute here. I was six months old when Jesus came by my place. <laughs> Just conceived in the womb of his mother and I leaped for joy when I heard the gospel. The good news that God was sending a Savior for sinners. Beloved, if God can take a physical body and make it grow faster than another physical body and does he not do that? Do we not see that some people can progress physically, far outstrip other human beings? Then cannot that same God take those mental capacities of consciousness and progress them to the point of bringing them to an awareness of the need of the Savior, even in the womb? Here we have this. And then the final great example of God sanctifying a human being's nature without their prior consent Is, is in our perfect example, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Let us remember, He was a perfect man. He had to be perfect. He was like we, yet without what? Sin. When was His nature perfectly sanctified? Hmm? We touched upon it in the message this morning, the moment of His conception. When the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and Jesus was conceived from that moment, his nature was sanctified, and that was prior to his consent. Now you read on in the scriptures and you find that this human nature of Christ grew in stature and in wisdom with whom? In favor with God and man. He was becoming God conscious and he was becoming man conscious. So that the humanity of Christ was not brought into this world possessing perfect knowledge. That was his deity. He had to grow up and learn how to be a carpenter. It didn't just come natural. He had to grow up and learn the scriptures as a human being. He had to become conscious of these things. But from the very moment of his conception, his nature was sanctified perfectly. Now, that in and of itself nullifies the Arminian logic that a human being must first consent to God before God can sanctify the nature. You say, that was Jesus. Ah, but he had to become a man. You say, he's different than us. No, he's not different than us. The only difference between he and me is that he was without sin. In order for him to be my Savior, he had to take on my humanity. He did not take upon him the nature of angels. He took upon him the nature of a son of Adam, Jim Gable. And he had to be the perfect man. And bless God, that's what he has predestinated me to be, is a perfect specimen of humanity. And he's going to do that in order to secure my consent. Hmm? He's just going to keep on working, and the more he works, the more I consent to it. Hmm? Isn't that great? Oh, I'm glad it's not the other way around because there's sometimes enough enmity left in me that I'm not willing to consent. Am I speaking to you there? Then what's your hope then? When that old powerful Adam begins to rise up, there's an unconditional work of grace that's going to overrule that unconsent and bring a sanctifying influence to that nature and make us willing in the day that that power is applied. Thy people shall be what? Willing. Thy people shall be consenting when the power of the Holy Spirit is applied. And Jesus Christ is the greatest example of this which we have in the scriptures. Now, the conclusion, then, is that it is only the Calvinistic view of salvation provides for the possible and the actual salvation of any infant, because the infant has to be elected, the infant has to be redeemed, and the infant has to be regenerated if the gospel is to be applied to the salvation so that they can enter the kingdom of heaven. But since the infant cannot perform the conditions of salvation, repentance, and faith, and obedience, then God can perform those conditions for them by electing them not on foreseen acts, but unconditionally. He can send his Son to die for them unconditionally and apply the benefits of the death of Christ unconditionally, and he can send forth the ministry of the Spirit to unconditionally sanctify the child's nature. Now, we've looked at the two systems tonight and their logic and while the Arminian system could logically provide for the salvation of a conscious adult, it cannot logically provide for the salvation of an unconscious infant. So, the Calvinistic system provides for both. I'm glad God can work as a Creator without man's consent. I'm glad God just does this. You know, God made Adam without his consent. Did you know that? I was <laughs> just reflecting on that this afternoon when I was reading along this line. God made Adam. He didn't have to get Adam's consent. He just created him. Why did he do it? Because it pleased him. pleased him to do so. He made Adam a man and not a monkey without his consent. He didn't go down there and say, Now, Adam, uh, do you want to be a man or a monkey? He just went ahead and did it. He defined all the conditions for Adam's test in Eden without Adam's consent. He didn't say, now, Adam, what do you think about this? You think this would be all right? We set this up, this tree, just like this, and then you agree to this? No, he just said, you do this. You stay away from that tree. He didn't wait for Adam's consent. He appointed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the sinner's redeemer without any man's consent to do so. He sent his spirit into the world without the world's consent. He convicts people. He converts sinners without their consent. He does a multitude of things, for men, to men, and through them, without their consent. God is not pictured in the Bible as a limited and conditioned God who must first gain the consent of his creatures. As I have so shall it come to pass. I stand before you tonight as a token of the workmanship of Almighty God. A token of grace, which God is to be given all honor and glory, and he has made me consenting. And I am willing to be his servant, even his bondslave, slave, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad, then, that we have a gospel for the helpless. I'm glad that we have a gospel for babies that can be saved, elected, redeemed, and regenerated unconditionally. Now, let some of you then leave and say, All right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You've convinced me. I believe that I've got to be a Calvinist in order to hold to infant salvation, but I'm still going to be an Arminian with adults. (laughs) I'm going to still cling to that. That if you grow up as an adult, you've got to first do this. Then I remind you of this. Jesus said to some adults, except you be converted and become as little children, you're not going to enter the kingdom. Except you reach a consciousness that you are as helpless to perform any condition to your salvation as a little infant, You're not ready to enter the kingdom. Hmm? Don't rest in your confidence to perform conditions. Rest in the Lord Jesus Christ to work those conditions within you tonight. Let us pray.